CNN's Anthony Bourdain tragically kills himself. President Trump goes to war with other members of the G7 and the North Korean talks approach. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. So it's obviously a depressing day in a lot of the public news. And we'll get to all of that in just a second. First, I want to make a couple of announcements. So first, I want to mention that on Father's Day, we'll be actually be doing something fun. So June 12th, 7 p.m. Eastern, Daily Wire God King Jeremy Boring is hosting a roundtable discussion with me and Andrew Clavin and Michael Knowles. And we'll all discuss what fatherhood means and Knowles will speculate about it and why fathers matter. And Knowles will speculate about that, too, and how fatherhood will stand up against an increasingly anti-male culture. And Knowles doesn't know anything about that either, but he'll sit there in silence. Subscribers will be able to write in live questions for us at dailywire.com. Again, that is Tuesday, June 12th, 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. And you can find our special live stream on Facebook and YouTube, so don't miss it. Also, uh, make sure that um, you check out Alexa and Google. You can now apparently get the show when you use Amazon Alexa and uh, all the rest. So you can check out our, our permanent posts over at Facebook and Twitter to find out how exactly to get the show through those mechanisms. Okay, before I jump into the news, and there is a lot of news to get to today, first I want to say thank you to Peter Millar. So Peter Millar is a, is a clothing company, and they were founded in 2001 with a single cashmere sweater. They've grown into a premium American lifestyle brand featuring a wide range of casual sportswear, tailored menswear, and luxury performance golf apparel. It is all super comfortable, great looking stuff. I have a pair of pants from Peter Millar. I have a pair of shorts from Peter Millar. Their shorts are really first class. They're called the Salem Hydrate Performance Shorts, and they are extraordinarily comfortable and they look really good. At least that's what my wife tells me. So recently, I've been receiving my style tips from the folks at Peter Millar, and you should check it out because if you want to look Tony and without spending tons and tons of money, Peter Millar is the place to do it. What you, what's great about Peter Millar polo shirts is that they're really comfortable and they're easy to take care of. Out of the dryer, you don't have to put an iron to them, so you don't have to worry about what to wear to any occasion because, again, Peter Millar becomes your go-to look. I mean, they really do have this wide variety of clothing that is really good-looking, it's a way to look rich without having to actually be rich. You're never going to look out of place with Peter Millar clothing. Everything I've ever worn from Peter Millar is extraordinarily comfortable. Check it out right now at petermillar.com slash Ben. And you can check out some of my Peter Millar favorites. Be sure to use my link and you will receive complimentary shipping as well as a free hat. That's petermillar, M-I-L-L-A-R.com slash Ben. That's petermillar.com slash Ben. Go check it out. The clothes are supremely comfortable and really good looking. petermillar.com slash Ben. Okay, so the big news of the day is obviously that Anthony Bourdain, the CNN host, killed himself. He hung himself, apparently, uh, at the age of 61. And this raises a, a number of serious questions about exactly how the American public ought to treat suicide, what we can do to minimize the risk of suicide. First of all, let me begin by saying that if you are depressed or if you are suicidal, please call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. That is 1-800-273-8255. Your life is worth more than throwing it away. There are so many different aspects to the suicide epidemic that's happening in the United States right now, and really is an epidemic. It's not only celebrities. It's not just Robin Williams. It's not just Kate Spade. It's not just Anthony Bourdain. Apparently, both Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade uh, were apparently, uh, at least I know this is true of Kate Spade, she was very obsessed with the Robin Williams suicide. What happens with a lot of folks who commit suicide is they become fixated on other people's suicide. There is a copycat effect that happens with regard to suicide. I want to give you some of the statistics on American suicide because they're extraordinarily scary. As of 2014, American suicide rates had skyrocketed to their highest rate in three decades, all the way to 13 people per 100,000, even as death rates from other causes have declined markedly. Suicide is particularly common among middle-aged white people. Obviously, that would include Robin Williams and Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain. The overall suicide rate climbed 24% from 1999 to 2014. In 2014, over 14,000 middle-aged white Americans committed suicide. Between 2006 and 2016, the suicide rate for white kids jumped 70%. The suicide rate among black kids, which is a lot lower generally than the suicide rate among white children, jumped 77%. According to USA Today, a study of pedi pediatric hospitals released last May found that admissions of patients ages 5 to 17 for suicidal thoughts and actions more than doubled between 2008 and 2015. The group at highest risk for suicide are white males between 14 and 21. So let's begin with this. What is causing this uptick in suicide? Why is it that we are seeing suicide at record rates in the United States at unprecedented rates over the last three decades in the United States? So let's, let's take some of the traditional theories and we'll talk about whether they are right or whether they are wrong. So one of the traditional theories is that suicide is a factor of poverty, that, it's, that when the economy has a downturn, then you see increased suicide. There's very little evidence to support this. There's very little evidence to support the idea that there's mass suicide on the, on the way when poverty breaks in. 
obviously the economy was well underway by 2014. That had not stopped the increase in suicide from 2008 to 2014. And the suicidality rate has continued to increase, as far as I'm aware, up to 2017 and 2018, when the economy has been extraordinarily good. I mean, we now have a 3.9% unemployment rate. So it's hard to blame the economy for all of this. Also, it is simply not true that poverty is linked to suicide. It's just not true. Maybe changing in financial conditions is linked to suicide, like you were rich and then you became poor or something. But in reality, there's almost a reverse correlation between wealth groups in the United States and suicide rate, at least in some areas. So white people on average are richer than black people on average. Black people on average in the United States commit suicide at a far lower rate than white people on average do in the United States as well. So I don't buy into the poverty as an explainer for suicide attempt that's been that's been put out there by the media. And then there's the most popular theory that's going around right now, which is that bullying is what is causing this uptick in suicide. There's an increase in the amount of bullying that's happening in schools. Number one, I don't see the evidence for that. I don't see that there's any evidence that suggests that bullying is worse now than it was, say, 30 years ago. So if it really were about bullying, then I don't see that. I, don't, I also don't see why that would have any impact on middle-aged white people killing themselves. Also, the statistics on bullying are, are really conflicting. So there have been studies that suggest that really it's depression and delinquency. And when people say they are bullied and then they commit suicide, that doesn't necessarily mean they were bullied. People who don't commit suicide are more likely to say that they were picked on as opposed to bullied. So in other words, if you acted the same way toward two people and one of them said I was bullied and one of them said I was picked on, the person who said I was bullied is more likely a person who's going to commit suicide just from the get-go than the person who says I was picked on. Now, I'm speaking from a position of experience when it comes to bullying. I was viciously bullied in high school. I was physically abused in high school. And none of that made me suicidal because I was not a clinically depressed person. And clinical depression and suicide obviously are highly linked together. So saying that it's just bullying and if America stopped its bullying, that everything would be better. Again, that doesn't explain why the black suicide rate is so low. If bullying and racism are so prevalent in American society, why aren't black suicide rates higher? Also, it's, it's obviously not true that uh, to go back to the poverty point for a moment, it's obviously not true that poverty is linked to suicide because actually poorer societies have lower suicide rates than richer societies. It's almost a Western phenomenon, the phenomenon of mass suicide and suicide in these, these numbers. So that takes a few of the key explanations that have been put on the table, off the table. There is a, an argument to be made. There, there, there are several arguments to be made about what exactly it is that causes suicide. First of all, clinical depression obviously is linked to suicide and clinical depression can be conditional or it can be or it can be just natural, right? I mean, it can be genetic, that it ran, run, depression runs in your family, or it can be conditionally related. And one of the things that gets people out of depression is very often something called cognitive behavioral therapy, where people are taught in psychoanalysis to essentially break the chain of bad thoughts that is leading them down a dark path. So people who are depressed tend to think that something bad happened to them, and therefore something worse is going to happen to them, and therefore something worse than that is going to happen to them, and this chain is unbreakable, there's no way to escape it, and therefore maybe I commit suicide. Well, cognitive behavioral therapy is designed to say to you, well, maybe the bad thing that's happening to you isn't all that bad. Maybe you should take a second glance at your emotions. Maybe you shouldn't actually humor your emotional state to the extent that we are humoring it right now. Now, some people require drugs for depression, and I am not anti-drug when it comes to severe depression. I think that medicating for serious mental disorders is a, is a, is a good thing. I think if you can alleviate your depression by taking Alexa, uh, what is this, Alexa? Uh, if, you, if you can alleviate your depression by taking some of the, the drugs uh, that are available on the market, then you should absolutely do so if you need to. But the question is not why, what to do when you have depression. The question really is why the depression exists in the first place. I would suggest that there is a, a societal lack of meaning that has said in a pretty serious way that young people have basically been told that their emotional state is key, that your emotional happiness is key. You know, in prior generations, people were basically taught that your emotional state was not key, that what you felt about the world was less important than what you did in the world, and that life was a lot of struggle. You had a higher purpose, you had a higher duty, and that there were gonna be people there to help you out through that higher purpose and higher duty. I think we've become more fragmented as a society. I think we've become more atomistic as a society. I think we've treated each other as objects rather than as human beings. More as a society, some of that has to do with radical up, uptick in, in use of social media. And some of that has to do with decline of religion. There, there are good studies that suggest that as religion decline, as religious communities decline, that rates of depression go up, rates of suicidality go up as well. Decline of religiosity in wealthier societies, their studies to support this, has led to an uptick in suicide. So finding a common meaning again, I think, is going to be something that we actually have to spend some time doing. You know, just sort of brushing this under the rug or suggesting that if we're a little bit nicer to each other, it's going to fix everything. I don't think that's correct. I think that there are a lot of people out there who are feeling that they, they lead a meaningless life. And if you feel that you lead a meaningless life and your only method of meaning, your only, your only way of gaining meaning 
is to look at the superficial or to look at friendship on social media or to gauge your life's worth by your amount of happiness, it's a real problem. You see this with regard to opioid addiction as well. If you read Dreamland by Sam Canonas, all about the opioid addiction massive wave that's been happening, one of the things he talks about is the fact that pain is now considered an ultimate evil in American society, that you actually use pain as what they call the fifth vital sign when you go in for a doctor's appointment, right? They check your vital signs, they check your pulse, they check your blood pressure, they check your, your temperature and all the rest, and then they ask you your pain level, and this is considered a vital sign that has to be alleviated. Well, people have been living with pain for thousands of years, but if your definition of happiness is avoidance of pain, then anytime you experience pain, you're going to take it a lot more seriously than you would if pain were not at the top of your list for something that matters deeply. Finding purpose in life beyond personal alleviation of pain or personal material wealth and happiness uh, is going to be something that's necessary for us as a society. And again, none of this is a cure for clinical depression. None of this is a cure for people who have genetic predisposition to depression. None of this is a cure for people who are going to be depressed no matter what. But it is an argument that there are people who are on the borderline of depression, who are tossed into depression by a lack of meaning in our society. I don't think that was the case by Anthony, by, by Anthony Bourdain. Anthony Bourdain seems to me like somebody who is suffering from some, deep, some serious demons for a long time. Here, for example, is Anthony Bourdain talking about some of the demons that he and his, uh, his fellow cooks sometimes experience. One of the painful, enduring lessons that you learn in the restaurant business why chefs are, you know, tend towards uh, drinking too much and yeah. <laughs> long periods of self-loathing yeah, right. and, and, and depression yeah. is because, you know, experience teaches them again and again that people don't want the good stuff, that they insist on the bad stuff and right. broken a lot of chefs. Okay, so, you know, obviously this is somebody who's been suffering for a long time. He talked very openly about the, the, the fact that he had a drug addiction issue uh, and that he'd suffered with depression for a serious amount of time. For folks like Anthony Bourdain, I'm not sure that there is necessarily a cure uh, in, the, in the realm of meaning. I mean, this is a guy who had, by all accounts, a pretty rich, happy life. He was just suffering. Um, but that doesn't mean that you right now can't help yourself. You should help yourself, okay? There is no excuse for suicide. Yeah, I know that as a society, we've decided that there is an excuse for suicide and that there is a, a more, there's almost a moral, a moral side to suicide, that committing suicide is something that should be treated purely as a tragedy and not as a moral decision. Well, Anthony Bourdain leaves behind a 13-year-old son. That's yeah, a moral decision, and that's something that we should be fighting against. That's not to blame Anthony Bourdain for his own condition. That's not to blame Anthony, condition for, uh, Anthony Bourdain for, for what he did to himself, but it is to say that as a society, we have, to, we have to see suicide as a moral bad. We have to see it as something that is inappropriate as a solution to any ills and to glorify it in any way is a serious problem. I'm going to talk about the glorification of suicide in just a second. First, I want to say thanks to PolicyGenius.com. So if you are worried about death, right, if you're, if you're concerned that at some point in the future, you're probably going to plot, not probably, at some point in the future, you will plot, and you want to make sure that your family is not actually left bereft, that's what Policy Genius is there to help you prevent. Policy Genius is the easy way to compare life insurance online in just five minutes. You can compare quotes from top insurers to find the best policy for you. And when you compare quotes, you save money. It is indeed that simple. In fact, Policy Genius has helped over 4 million people shop for insurance, and they've placed over $20 billion in coverage. So go check it out. They don't just make life insurance easy. They also do disability insurance and renter's insurance and health insurance. If you care about it, they can indeed cover it. If you've been putting off getting life insurance, there really is no excuse for doing so because, again, it's just an irresponsible decision to leave your family in the lurch. It's never been easier to buy. Rates are right now at a 20-year low. Check it out at policygenius.com, policygenius.com. Again, it's very quick. It's very easy, and it will help you compare all the various quotes that you need. It's, it's simple. It'll ensure that your family is taken care of if something bad should happen to you. Check it out, policygenius.com, the easy way to compare and buy life insurance. Okay, talking about the glorification of suicide, one of the serious issues that we in the media have to deal with, and I want to start this conversation today because I'm still trying to figure out for the media outlet that I run exactly how we ought to cover issues like Anthony Bourdain's suicide. There is something called the Werther Effect. Okay, the Werther Effect is a very well-studied phenomenon it's essentially copycat suicide. When a person who is very prominent commits suicide, there are a lot of people who begin thinking a lot more about suicide, fixating a lot more on suicide, thinking of it as a glorious out. I remember after Robin Williams' death, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences put out uh, a tweet of the genie, right, because Robin Williams played the genie, saying, you're free now, genie. Okay, that sort of glorification of suicide is awful and actually promotes suicide, obviously. The Werther Effect is named after a book called The Sorrows of Young Werther by Goethe. Uh, that book uh, supposedly, I mean, the, the studies are conflicting, caused suicides all over the continent. There were, there were young men who saw it as such a romantic ideal to commit suicide. They actually started walking around wearing the clothes that Werther is described as wearing in the book. But whether it was true of the Goethe book or not, it has been confirmed over and over and over. In the aftermath, for example, of Marilyn Monroe's suicide, in the months after her death, there were 303 excess suicides, meaning higher than average, in the United States. There have been multiple studies on this sort of stuff 
after that, that show by Netflix, 13 Reasons Why, which essentially glorified suicide and said there were excuses for it, that a normal person who didn't suffer from depression or problems could be bullied into suicide. Once that show came out, Google queries about suicide, this is according to The Atlantic, rose by almost 20% in 19 days after the show came out, representing between 900,000 and 1.5 million more searches than usual regarding the subject. 17 out of the top 20 searches were significantly elevated. The biggest increases came with terms related to suicidal thoughts and ideation, like how to kill yourself. And many European countries actually have laws on the books that prevent the media from reporting about suicide, specifically to avoid this. In Venice, they had a spate of people throwing themselves on the train tracks. And uh, I believe that they actually changed the law so that people could not report on that and the rates of suicide by throwing yourself on a train track went down. Now, I'm not calling for abridgment of the First Amendment or laws on this basis, but in the same way that I've suggested that my media outlet will no longer report the names or faces of mass shooters, I'm seriously considering changing the rules here at The Daily Wire when it comes to coverage of celebrity suicide or suicide in general. There is something that I want to talk about in just one second called the Papageno effect. Uh, this is the counter argument. The media should actually cover all of this stuff. So the Papageno effect basically suggests uh, that if the media covers this stuff in a, in a positive way, if the media covers suicide in, in an attempt to dissuade you from committing it, that this lowers the rate of suicide, that really only applies when you are telling a story about somebody who's considering suicide and then didn't do it. So if you're covering somebody's actual suicide, it's very difficult to avoid people having dark thoughts about doing the same thing. Uh, the Papageno effect is named after Mozart's magic flute character because Papageno is a character in the opera who's considering suicide, and then he's talked out of it by essentially three young boys who are, who are sprites or spirits. And that effect has not been all that well documented. It's a pretty recent study. I believe in Australia, they've done some studies on the Papageno effect. But the idea there is that the way to help make suicide less palatable to people is to show them stories of people who would have committed, committed suicide, but didn't do, then did not go ahead and actually do it. In covering celebrity suicide, uh, we may in fact be doing a serious disservice. And I'm admitting that that's what we're doing right now. And that's why I'm reconsidering, you know, I'm considering right now actively what we should do as media outlets. Uh, with regard to coverage of suicide. So there are a lot of issues to unpack here, but I think that we all tend to go surface level when it comes to the problem of suicide in America. We tend to think on the right that you can just bully your way through depression, which I don't think is generally true. We tend to think on the left that if we just cut out bullying and if we're just, if we're just nicer to each other, then suicide goes away. I don't think that's true either. I think that we have a crisis of meaning in our society that is happening right now where young people don't know why they are living. What is the point of their life? Why exactly is it important for them to remain alive as opposed to killing themselves? Uh, and if we don't fill that gap with something, then that gap will be filled with nothingness. And that's a, that's a very scary thing. We need to come to grips with that. We need to come to grips with the fact that happiness in life cannot be linked to your, your material well-being. It has to be linked with a purpose. It has to be linked with something that matters. Right? People who believe that they are living for something that matters are far less likely to commit suicide, which is why you see that there's, there's less of a suicide rate among people who are involved in communal activities, not just because there's a community there, but because they feel like they are pushing towards something greater. If we don't recapture that, if we become this atomized society where we're all individuals and we sadly tweet RIP Anthony Bourdain when we see a suicide, I don't think that this, this crisis is going to get any better any quicker. I think that we, are, we have become a solipsistic society that is very inwardly focused, and that has some pretty negative ramifications, some pretty negative side effects. We need to start being other focused. And that just doesn't that doesn't just mean for those of us who are not clinically depressed, reaching out to people who are clinically depressed. It means that people who are on the verge of depression, depression is I've lived with people with depression. Okay, depression is extraordinarily difficult to deal with, uh, not just by the person who's dealing with it, but by everybody living with that person. If you've ever been in a house with somebody with depression, uh, then what you can you can feel it. It's it legitimately feels like there is a dark presence in the house with you. And the, well, I think one of the great lies that's told about depression is that depression is about lack of self-esteem. Depression is about complete focus on self. Uh, for I, I've dealt with many depressed people, severely depressed people. I, I've People I'm close to who have been suicidal. The, what, from the outside, what it looks like is somebody who is so self-obsessed because they're tearing themselves down that they can't get out of it. And the cure to that is to get out of your own head. Uh, the cure to that, whether, whether that requires a boost from some sort of drug, that's quite possible. But the cure for that is to live beyond oneself. And as a society, if we start living beyond ourselves, we're going to be a lot better off in terms of suicide than we will if we continue to go down this path of Instagram selfies and materialism and the idea that happiness can be bought with the price of a dollar or that happiness, is, happiness consists in 
in essentially libertinism, that happiness consists in doing whatever you want, whenever you want to do it, as opposed to living for a higher purpose. Happiness consists in living for a higher purpose. Without purpose, we are all here for no reason. Uh, and that's, uh, I think, what, what the West is falling into. I think the West has fallen into a crisis of meaning that, that it's having a very, time, a very difficult time pulling out of. That does have some political ramifications. And more importantly, it has some very serious spiritual ramifications as well. So, you know, I feel terrible mostly for Anthony Bourdain's family. Uh, it's just a horrifying, horrifying story. Same thing is true for Kate Spade. Uh, and um, again, if today you are having problems with depression, please, please go check out the National Suicide Hotline Prevention Line. Please go check that out. Like right now, don't wait um, because, you know, you, your life does matter. Your life does matter. The number again is 1-800-273-8255, 800-273-8255. Okay, so I want to move on to President Trump at the G7 in just a second. First, I want to talk about movement watches. So you've heard me talk about movement watches, right? You've heard me talk about movement stuff. You've heard me talk about this, this right here, this brilliant, magical movement watch. This thing is great, okay? It's spectacular. The movement watch is clean. It is spare. It tells the time. It's not going to give you how many steps you walked in a day. It's not going to blow up your, your watch with text messages. Instead, the movement watch is going to give you the time in the classiest possible way and for a price that you can afford. Movement started off as a bunch of crowdfunded kids, a couple of crowdfunded kids, two college dropouts who started their own watch company. They've now sold 2 million watches in 160 plus countries, and they continue to expand the styles that they are making available to you. So check out their site right now. Their watches start at 95 bucks. At a department store, you're looking at 400, 500 bucks for these watches. Classic design, quality construction, styled minimalism. Get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns by going to mvmt.com slash Shapiro. That's mvmt.com slash Shapiro. See why the movement keeps growing. Check out their expanding collection. Again, these movement watches also, by the way, make fantastic gifts. So if you're still searching for that Father's Day gift and you want to make a last minute Father's Day gift, buy. Go to mvmt.com slash Shapiro. Check it out mvmt.com slash Shapiro for 15% off today. Free shipping, free returns. Join the movement. I love all their stuff. mvmt.com slash Shapiro. Go check it out. That lets them know also that we sent you. Okay, so meanwhile, President Trump is going to the G7 and he is in a spat with everyone at the G7 because President Trump has this bizarre view that we will all be better off if he tariffs everyone. So a few preliminary points. There's been a lot of talk about how President Trump's tariffs are going to be good for the American economy or how President Trump's tariffs are somehow going to help us in some serious way. It is not correct, okay? I've said, if you want to use tariffs as a way to ratchet down Chinese intellectual property theft, for example, then maybe use it as a punishment. But you have to acknowledge that it's a punishment that also hurts the American taxpayer because we are now paying more for products. And for all the talk about the tariffs that are being placed on American products by Canada, the fact is the average U.S. tariff rate is 2.79% when you average across all products that are imported, the tariff rate, it's 2.79%. Canada's average tariff rate is 2.44%. So Canada... In the same way as the United States, there are a bunch of lobbying groups that have lobbied to protect, you know, sausage and dairy and various other products. But America has exactly the same sorts of tariffs because of lobbying groups here, right? We have a 132% tariff on peanuts. You ever wonder why peanuts are so expensive? That's why peanuts are so expensive. 35% on tuna, 20% on dairy, 25% on trucks, 16% on wool sweaters. We have prohibitive sugar quotas, so that's why we use corn syrup here in the United States is because we basically tariff sugar out of existence. The United States does have a lot of tariffs on products. So do many other countries. We should work to remove all those tariffs, but ratcheting up tariffs, unless your goal is to ratchet down tariffs on the other side, doesn't seem to make a whole hell of a lot of sense. And it does damage the American taxpayer. There's a story today about President Trump's Section 232 tariffs on steel and aluminum imports. So according to AMM.com, which studies these markets, American metal markets, aluminum foundry alloy premium, a price closely watched by automakers, climbed 15 to 17 cents per pound on May, May 11th, up 60% from the start of the year. The assessment for hot-dipped galvanized steel coil rose to $54.75 per hundredweight on May 31st, up 17% since the beginning of the year. This means that the price of your car is about to go up in a pretty significant way. And there's a White House economic analysis. The White House itself is acknowledging the tariffs are bad for the economy in a way that President Trump refuses to acknowledge the tariffs are bad for the economy. According to the New York Times, the findings from the White House Council of Economic Advisors have been circulated only internally and not publicly released, as is often the case with the council's work. But the determination comes as top White House officials continue to insist publicly that Mr. Trump's trade approach will be massively good for the U.S. economy. The analysis concludes that Mr. Trump's tariffs will hurt economic growth into, in, in the United States. And that, of course, is no shock because tariffs always hurt the growth of the country that imposes the actual tariff. There's been a lot of talk about whether Congress is going to overrule President Trump. They probably will not. Uh, and that is an element of gutless on the part, uh, gutlessness on the part of the American Congress. 
Uh, Republicans, I don't care if you're Republicans or Democrats, you should be standing up when the policy is bad and this is in your purview. And I understand that there are Republicans who are very afraid that President Trump is too thin-skinned on these issues and that if they react by stripping him of authority on trade, that he's going to react by suddenly going and working with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer or something. I don't think that you can govern by being afraid of the president of the United States, just as I don't think the president of the United States should govern by being afraid of Congress. The, The system was built for checks and balances, and trade authority was not given to the president of the United States. It was delegated there by Congress. It can be removed at any point. Nonetheless, President Trump is now in a flame war with Emmanuel Macron, who is the uh, the leader of France. So Macron was tweeting out against the president. The American president may not mind being isolated, but neither do we mind signing a six-country agreement if need be, because these six countries represent values. They represent an economic market which has the weight of history behind it and which is now a true international force. And then he continued along these lines. He said, the will to have a text signed by seven countries must not be stronger than the content of that text. On principle, we must not rule out a six plus one agreement. So first of all, I will just say this about Emmanuel Macron and the Europeans. They're perfectly happy to sign an agreement with Iran that was garbage, but they're not going to work that hard to sign an agreement with the United States. It seems like they might want to work a little harder on all of that. But if he's talking about tariffs and trade policy, President Trump is very difficult on these issues. And here's what President Trump was tweeting. President Trump responded, why isn't the European Union and Canada informing the public that for years they've used massive trade tariffs and non-monetary trade barriers against the U.S.? Totally unfair to our farmers, workers, and companies. Take down your tariffs and barriers or we will more than match you. Okay, well, except that when we ratchet up our own tariffs and barriers, they ratchet up their tariffs and barriers, and it was Trump who started this thing by ratcheting up tariffs and barriers. The EU has announced that it's going to start imposing a sweeping round of tariffs on about $3 billion worth of U.S. products in retaliation after the, US, after the White House's decision to hit European steel and aluminum products with duties. Trump continued along these lines. He said, please tell Prime Minister Trudeau and President Macron that they are charging the U.S. massive tariffs and create non-monetary barriers. The EU trade surplus with the U.S. is $151 billion, and Canada keeps our farmers and others out. Looking forward to seeing them tomorrow. Well, last sentence doesn't seem to link very well with the previ- previous sentences. But if Trump's worry here is that, there is, a, is that there's a trade imbalance, that's just a dumb worry. I'm sorry. Economically speaking, that's ignorant. Okay? The idea that a trade imbalance is bad for the United States is foolish. You have a trade imbalance with your grocery store. Every time you go to your grocery store, you pay the money and you get groceries. Does this mean you got screwed by your grocery store? No, it absolutely does not. The national debt, the national deficit, these have nothing to do with trade surpluses or trade deficits. Okay, there's nothing great about a trade surplus. There's nothing terrible about a trade surplus. There are countries that have trade surpluses right now. Venezuela has a trade surplus. Okay, that means nothing. The question is whether consumers are able to access the products they want to access. And by the way, if there is a trade deficit, right, if we have a trade deficit with the EU, that means they have a bunch of U.S. dollars. What do you think they do with those U.S. dollars? Well, they can't use them in Europe. They have to expend them back here in the United States. They have, a, they have what's called a capital account surplus. They have to take those dollars. They have to reinvest them in the United States. That means they either buy real estate or they buy U.S. stocks or, the, or they buy U.S. bonds. So all of the worry about the trade surplus, trade deficit stuff, just it, it doesn't make a lot of economic sense. President Trump continues along these lines. He says, Prime Minister Trudeau is being so indignant, bringing up the relationship that the U.S. and Canada had over the many years and all sorts of other things, but he doesn't bring up the fact that they charge us up to 300% on dairy, hurting our farmers and killing our agriculture. Okay, I also don't like those trade barriers, but us ratcheting up our own tariffs hurts our own taxpayers. Again, it means that we have to pay more for the same products, which seems foolish. And then President Trump tweeted, finally, this is at 12, looking forward to straightening out unfair trade deals with the G7 countries. If it doesn't happen, we come out even better. Well, that's not true. Okay, if we do not straighten out this, this is the problem with President Trump's view on trade. Again, if you were using this to actually ratchet down trade barriers, I'd be okay with that. But it seems like he's more than happy to walk away from the table without ratcheting down trade barriers. And that's, uh, that, that's not only a waste, it's just bad policy overall. President Trump, by the way, suggested something very foolish today. Uh, he suggested today that Russia should be added back into the G8. The reason that Russia was originally kicked out of the G8, the G7 plus one, is because Russia invaded Ukraine. And now without them getting out of Crimea, he's suggesting openly that he should instead allow them back into the G8. This doesn't make any sense at all. Here's what Trump had to say about it. I love our country. I have been Russia's worst nightmare. If Hillary got in, I think Putin is probably going, man, I wish Hillary won because you see what I do. But with that being said, Russia should be in this meeting. Why are we having a meeting without Russia being in the meeting? And I would recommend, and it's up to them, but Russia should be in the meeting. It should be a part of it. Okay, I, there's no, no, this is, this is just wrong. Russia should not be a part of the meeting. Russia is, in fact, one of the leading sponsors of violence on planet Earth right now. 
they are responsible for acts of terrorism. I mean, no, they should not be in the meeting. And for Trump to say this is just an act of ignorance. Now, one thing that I think Trump is right about is he is leaving mid-morning on Saturday. So he's going to stick around the G7 for about five minutes, and then he's going to leave. He's not going to stick around for sessions on climate change and the environment. First of all, I generally think that these sorts of high-level meetings are, are photo ops and foolish. I don't think that they actually have anything to do with getting anything done. It's usually low-level negotiators who actually get these things together. But if they are for anything, it's about showing solidarity, and President Trump continues to avoid doing that. Uh, I think that it's good not to show solidarity on the Iran deal. I do not think that it is good not to show solidarity when it comes to a, a more open world trade order. Uh, it, and, and again, that's not a new world order. Okay, that, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you as a consumer have the right to pick which products you wish to buy or with whom you wish to do business. Okay, so in just a second, I'm going to get to the mailbag. Uh, and also, I want to talk about a leak investigation that has been going on and that is somewhat troubling. First, I want to say thanks to our sponsors over at Keeps. So, you're losing your hair, okay? You're probably losing your hair. If you're a dude, look at your dad. The chances that you're gonna look like your dad in 20 years are basically 100%. So if you are losing your hair right now, or if you're looking at dad and figuring he lost his hair, so you probably will as well, you need to go to my friends over at Keeps. There is a solution. There are two clinically proven medications that let you keep your hair, and now they are inexpensive and easy to get. You don't need to lose that hair. In, for five minutes now, in just a buck a day, you never have to worry about hair loss again. So I use Keeps for precisely this reason. My father uh, had male pattern baldness. I do not wish to experience the same. That's what Keeps helps you prevent. So here's how it works. You go to Keeps.com. Sign up takes less than five minutes. You answer a few questions and you snap some photos using your computer or your phone. A licensed doctor remotely reviews that information and recommends the right treatment for you, all without you ever leaving your couch. Keeps offers generic versions of the only two FDA-approved hair loss products out there. Some of you probably tried them before, but they are really cheap. They're really easy to get. Keeps is only 10 bucks to 35 bucks a month, which is a lot cheaper than the alternative, let me tell you. I know. One heck of a deal for getting to keep your hair. To get your first month of treatment for free, go to keeps.com slash Ben. That's K-E-E-P-S dot com slash Ben. Again, keeps.com slash Ben and get a free month of treatment. K-E-E-P-S dot com slash Ben. Great service. And again, no reason for you to lose your hair. Keeps.com slash Ben. Use that slash Ben so that they know that we sent you. Okay, I have a lot more to get to on the show. They're going to have to go over to dailywire.com and subscribe to get it live. So if you want to ask questions, today is the day. And at Daily Wire, you can subscribe and ask those questions for $9.99 a month. You can also get the Clavin Show live, the Knowles Show live. Uh, also, when we have events, like we're having two big events in August, uh, then one of the things that you can do is you can actually get VIP tickets before anyone else when you become a subscriber. So check that out. The annual subscription comes along with this, the very greatest in all beverage vessels, the leftist tears, hot or cold tumbler. You will love it. You will enjoy it. It will, it will make your life richer in virtually every conceivable way. So go check that out right now for $99 a year. Also, as I announced earlier, The Ben Shapiro Show is now available on Amazon Alexa and Google Home. So if you have a virtual assistant, you can listen to my podcast with a simple voice command after you enable the skill on Alexa or ask Google to talk to the show. For more information, just go check out our pinned tweets on Facebook and Twitter. So go check that out right now. now. If you want to listen later, make sure that you subscribe. You should subscribe because on Sunday, we have our Sunday special. And our Sunday special this week features the inimitable Jonah Goldberg. So go check that out right now uh, by subscribing at YouTube or at iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. We are the largest, fastest growing conservative podcast in the nation. All righty. So I also want to talk about this big leak investigation. So according to NBC News, a longtime staffer for the Senate Intelligence Committee has been arrested on charges of lying to investigators, probing the potential leaking of classified information the Justice Department announced on Thursday night. A federal grand jury indicted the staffer, James Wolfe, who is 58, on three counts of making false statements in December about contacts with reporters, including providing sensitive information related to the work of the Senate Intelligence Committee, which he served as director for security director for 29 years. He was arrested on Thursday. He's expected to appear in U.S. District Court for the District of Maryland on Friday. His arrest comes just one day after the full Senate, with little advance notice, quietly authorized the committee to cooperate with the Justice Department regarding what was described only as an investigation arising out of allegations of the unauthorized disclosure of information. So what the leak was, according to BuzzFeed, uh, is the leak was that this guy had leaked information to a New York Times reporter and a BuzzFeed reporter that, the, that there had been Russian spies targeting Carter Page, basically, to meet with him. And this was leaked out in the middle of the investigation, and this is indeed an illegal leak, and the Trump administration decided to pursue it. Now, all of that is fine, right? The guy illegally leaked, and he should go to jail if he illegally leaked because you don't like illegal leaks. With that said, the person he was leaking to was apparently somebody who, was this reporter he was leaking to, he was sleeping with. So that's pretty awesome. Uh, that's, that's always great. Uh, the, the person's name is Allie Watkins, 
Uh, Ellie Watkins was, um, was reporting on this. She published an article on BuzzFeed News about this. FBI agents initially approached Ms. Watkins about the relationship she had with Mr. Wolf, saying they were investigating unauthorized leaks. And then the Justice Department told her in a letter sent in February her records had been seized. Now, here's the part where I start to get a little dicey. So Ellie Watkins seems like a piece of work. Right? She was tweeting out recently that, you know, that she sort of liked the character from House of Cards who apparently was sleeping with an older staffer to get leaked information, uh, which makes perfect sense since apparently that's what she was doing. She was in her early 20s and this guy was in his late 50s. So clearly this is a love match that was happening right here. Um, but here is a, a, a serious problem. And it was a serious problem when Obama did it. It's a serious problem when Trump does it. When Obama was in office, you remember, he targeted the Associated Press and he targeted James Rosen of Fox News by essentially tapping their phones and checking their emails without permission. Uh, and they were tapping his mom's phone, James Rosen's mom's phone, to try and determine his whereabouts in an attempt to determine a leaker from the State Department. Okay, that was bad stuff. You shouldn't be phone tapping journalists. You shouldn't be, you shouldn't be white ring journalists. You shouldn't be in un, in unwarranted fashion going after journalists' private information simply to lock down a leak. It is the job of journalists to gather information in every legally conceivable way. And she didn't do anything illegal by reporting on something that somebody leaked to her. Okay, it's the guy who did something illegal. So checking into her records is a serious problem. It was bad when Obama did it. And you can't protest one and say that the other is okay. No matter how much you dislike Allie Watkins, and I think that she seems, again, like a piece of work, no matter how much you dislike the leak, tapping journalists is not a good thing. Just as if you don't like President Trump, you still can't tap him, right? If that's what happened at Trump Tower, and no evidence of that. But if you're objecting to tapping President Trump at Trump Tower, you know, and the left says, well, we think it's justified, they're going to have to really show how it was justified. I don't see necessarily how this particular phone tap was justified simply because they wanted to track down the leaker inside the government. You want to track down the leaker inside the government, then go track down the leaker inside the government. You don't get to, you don't get to go after private people's records simply because you want the information that they have at their, at their, at their um, behest, uh, at their beck and call. Okay. Time for some mailbag. So let's jump right in. Christopher says, hey, Ben, when I graduate high school next year, I plan to pursue a career in teaching elementary school students. I understand that many teachers are left-leaning and I am not. How can I keep conservative values while also doing what's best for our schools and my students? Thanks. Well, I don't think that it's all that tough. It depends what grade you're trying to teach. But if you can decide the curriculum, I think one of the things that you can do is just assign alternative readings. So whatever the assigned textbook is, you use that. And then you say, and here's some alternative viewpoints on the same set of facts. And that's, a well, that's what a well-rounded teacher does. Um, I think that that would behoove all of us. I mean, I think that the best education that I got largely was not only through teachers who did that, but also because I spent an awful lot of time outside of class reading about the material that I was reading inside of class. You can do more by exposing people to new types of ideas than you can by simply going along to get along, I think, as long as you're not going to get fired. Joe says, hey, Ben, I'm a graduate student in counseling psychology. And in my multicultural class, it was suggested by classmates that when students feel they accidentally had a microaggression slip when speaking, they're supposed to say, oops. And when you feel a microaggression has been placed upon you, you are supposed to say, ouch in class discussions. Ben, in this situation, I'm deciding whether to be over-the-top sarcastic with this being practiced in class or if I should openly talk about how stupid and infantile this idea is. What do you suggest? This is 100% real, not a drill. Well, what I would do is uh, I wouldn't use the word stupid and infantile, even though it is indeed stupid and infantile. I would come in with a bevy of social science research showing that microaggression culture is bad. Go read Jonathan Haidt's piece with Greg Lukianoff over at The Atlantic, I think it was last year, all about the foolishness of the microaggression culture, how it's damaging to people, how it destroys our common space, and how it makes people more sensitive and incentivizes people to be victims. Go check that out and then bring in a lot of data and then just say, listen, here, I have some real objections to doing this in class and here's why I'm not going to be participating. I just want to let you know, I'm not trying to be a jerk. I'm not trying to be rude. Here's all the information that you need on why I'm not doing this and why I think it's foolish for us to pursue this policy. Daniel says, hey, Ben, you mentioned John Stuart Mill the other day on your show. Could you recommend any books by John Stuart Mill? So the, the classic by John Stuart Mill, of course, is uh, On Liberty by John Stuart Mill. And that's sort of his doctrine of utilitarianism in a nutshell. Uh, that is, uh, you know, his most famous work, obviously. Uh, uh, he, uh, he, he also wrote the bo a book literally called Utilitarianism. Um, but you, you can get a really good compendium of, of his stuff uh, they, they make these compendiums from Cambridge. Cambridge has these texts. I'm looking at one right now. John Stuart Mill on Liberty and Other Writings, edited by Stephen Collini. Go check that out. Uh, his stuff is well worth reading. I'm not a complete believer in his brand of utilitarianism, um, but I appreciate his viewpoint on utilitarianism in government. Right? That I appreciate. The, the idea that as long as I'm not harming you, the government has no business telling me what to do. That I, that I agree with. Peter says, God, King Shapiro. Well, I'm, I'm not allowed to take that title from Jeremy Boring. Have you ever struggled with any aspects of your faith or your belief in God? If so, what settled your mind? I mean, I think that faith is a constant struggle. I don't think it's that you feel struggles and then you are, and then and then you stop struggling. A life is all about you trying to breach the cognitive dissonance between the fact that suffering happens in the world and you have difficult times and the fact that there's a plan for you and that there's a purpose to life. And this is a constant struggle. This is why 
in the Bible, the name of Israel, right? It's Yisrael in Hebrew. That literally means struggled with God and overcame, right? That's, that's what it means. It's from the situation where Jacob wrestles with the angel and he's renamed at that point from Jacob to Israel because he struggled with God and overcame. Okay, what that doesn't mean you overcome God. It means that you, you do struggle with the concept of God. You struggle with, is there a purpose to life? Is there a reason in the universe? I think absolutely there is. I think Western civilization, Western civilization is built on that purpose and reason. And I think the evidence is all around us, not just in nature. I mean, that's the easy answer is you look to nature, you look how beautiful it is. You look at the fact that you have a baby, you have a baby kid, you know, you have, like when my kids were born, you look at that and you say, how can there not be a God? I understand the emotional aspect of that. Look at the civilization that surrounds you. Understand that is unique in human history and that is the outgrowth of a 3,000 year process beginning at Sinai and ending with you here today. Right? And, and if you don't see the hand of God in that, then I would suggest that you have not delved into the history of thought deeply enough uh, or that you are, you are relying on a very reductionist view of materialism to define your life, which I find utterly unfulfilling and very difficult to build a system of thought upon. Uh, Don says, Ben, enjoy the show. I understand your stance on trade. I may be naive on using it as a tool. I can only tell you from working in manufacturing, if I have two sources of steel, if both meet my design requirements and one is cheaper, I'm going to be using it. I'm not really looking at Buy American. I'm looking at the bottom line. If that steel comes in with the tariff, my other supplier becomes the primary due to cost. Yes, some of that higher cost may be moved to the consumer. My question to you is if the lower cost is due to folks like China dumping steel below cost to manufacture, is that fair to other producers? How do you manage that inequity? Well, the truth is that there are always going to be companies that are undercutting you. Now, is it fair? Look, do I think that China should be subsidizing its steel industry? No. But do I think that it is worthwhile for the United States to then tariff Chinese steel and disc and and somehow undercut American consumers in more efficient industries? No, I don't think that's right either. Because as you say, let's say that you now have to spend more money on the steel supplier. Well, that means that you're going to be spending less money on your employees, presumably, but your costs went up. So either you pass that on to the consumer or you're spending that money in other places. Is it fair to you that you now have to buy more expensive steel because we have to protect some industry here as opposed to not protecting that industry? And the idea that, by the way, China can subsidize all of its industries is obviously untrue. China cannot subsidize all of its industries. It can pick a couple of key industries it wants to subsidize. There are national security reasons, for example, that if we don't want America's steel production dropping below a certain point, we tariff. But we're not anywhere near that point right now. And if China wants to waste its own money subsidizing industries in order to undercut the price of steel in the United States, that's their problem and it's our gain. Honestly, their subsidy is our gain to a certain extent in that industry. And it's our loss if we tariff our own people because a tariff is a tax on our own consumers and our own producers. Samuel says, hey, Ben, since Mike Pence would become president if President Trump were impeached, do you really think the policy would change much if in the off chance of the left ever actually succeeded in impeaching Trump? No, I don't. I think that you know President Pence would govern very much like President Trump has been governing. He's been very conservative. President Trump, to my great surprise and satisfaction. Jefferson says, hi, Ben. You've mentioned recently how the media has been shying away from new reports outlining the imminent demise of Social Security and Medicaid and Medicare. Would you mind expanding on this? And what options should be considered in addressing and resolving this threat? Great show, greater Tumblr. Well, I appreciate it, Jefferson. So um, the, the media have been remiss in reporting on this beyond sort of the basics. You haven't seen blanket coverage that Social Security is going to be bankrupt by 3034. Medicare will be bankrupt by 2026. Okay, that is scary stuff. We're not talking a long ways down the road. We are talking about within the foreseeable future, like in the next 10 to 15 years. That means that we have to figure something out. The way to figure something out is by totally restructuring this stuff, bring it down to local level, getting the federal government out of the business of Social Security and Medicare altogether, putting it back on charitable institutions and community institutions at the, at the outside if we can. Uh, we have to make the payments to the people who have already been guaranteed payments. But if you are younger, you should instead be given the opportunity to take your money out of Social Security uh, and you should be instead told to invite, you should be told instead to, to put that money, to invest that money uh, in, in stocks, in bonds, in, in whatever it is that you choose to do. Also, we should raise the retirement age. That's something we should do right now. People are living longer. It is stupid not to raise the retirement age for people who are not already retired. And, um, and we should look at whether benefits are cost of living adjusted. I do not think they should be because money does not legitimately like have sex with itself and then multiply into new money. That's not how it works. Okay, when you put something into the Social Security Trust Fund, it isn't my grandma paid in 50 bucks a, a, a year in 1953, and now she gets out 3,000 bucks a month. Okay, that, that money didn't magically multiply. Uh, Akraz says, what are the standards for counterintelligence investigations and privacy? I don't understand what the rules are if there is no evidence a crime was committed. Well, counterintelligence investigations, you don't need, for example, a warrant to spy on foreign sources. You do need a warrant to spy on American sources. Uh, if you're spying on foreign sources and Americans get caught in the loop, 
then that is a more dicey issue. Usually you have to get a FISA warrant for something like that, or you may have to get a FISA warrant for something like that. Uh, if you're spying on an American citizen like Carter Page, then you do need to actually go get a FISA warrant with court approval. Counterintelligence investigations uh, generally require less of a burden in order for you to go gather information than criminal investigations because American citizens are the only ones who can be prosecuted in criminal investigations in the United States, and they have rights that foreigners simply don't uh, in our system. Shelby says, hey, Ben, my husband and I have been saving since we got married to travel to Israel. I'll be going this year. The group we are touring with has done a great job of, re of scheduling us pretty much everything you'd want to see while there. Is there anything that ranks at the top of your list to see or foods or restaurants that are must-try while over there? Thanks for keeping us informed and grounded through your show. Uh, Shelby, so the one that, that people tend to miss on the tours uh, is, is Tzfat. So Tzfat is, is the home of Kabbalistic thinking. Um, it's sort of the spiritual center of, of Hasidish, uh, the, the kind of spiritual side of Judaism, the more spiritual side of Judaism. Obviously, everything in Jerusalem you should go visit. All, all the main points you're, you're going to hit. Um, Masada, obviously, is pretty amazing. Um, but I, I think that Tzfat is one of my favorite places in Israel just because you can you can feel the holiness of the city emanating and at least the, the dedication to spirituality of the people living there. It's also an artist colony, which is really neat. Like They have these little hole-in-the-wall shops on this block-long area. When I say hole-in-the-wall, I mean no bigger than the size, not much bigger than a phone booth. I mean, maybe three phone booths put together and they have all these different artists who put their stuff together there and they will cook you uh, and, and they have um, yeah, just this great Middle Eastern food. They have uh, like zata on um, on a, a particular type of bread that's just delicious. Uh, so check out some of the indigenous cooking if you can, right? Don't, don't just stick to sort of the chain restaurants uh, or the higher level kosher cooking because you can do that anywhere. Um, instead, I would check out you know, some of the some of the roadside stands. Those are those are they're really good. They're really good. Patrick says, my wife and I are expecting our first child in a few weeks. I was wondering if you had an opinion on vaccinations. Everyone has an opinion. Each one is different. I'd like to get your thoughts. Okay, this is not an opinion. This is fact. Vaccinations work. Do it. Do it. Okay, the myths about autism and vaccination are just that. They are myths. They're based on bad science. They're a bunch of crap. It is not true. Okay, and people who do not vaccinate their kids because their yoga teacher told them not to vaccinate their kids or because they were listening to Jenny McCarthy or somebody who doesn't know a damn thing about science, it's idiotic. Okay, we have essentially wiped smallpox out in, on planet Earth because of vaccination. Okay, vaccination is one of the great inventions in human history, one of the great discoveries in human history. And to not vaccinate your child is not only irresponsible for your child, it is irresponsible for other children because there are kids who cannot actually get vaccinations and require herd immunization in order to prevent them from getting sick. I talked about this a couple of years ago. Go back and listen to the episode. I did nearly an entire episode on this with regard to my daughter who came down with whooping cough. She'd been vaccinated, but the problem is that the vaccination is only about 85% effective, which means you require everybody to be vaccinated so that there is herd immunity, right? The, the level of vaccination effectiveness skyrockets when everybody has a vaccination. There are externalities to not getting, a to not getting vaccinated. So normally I would say do whatever you want. It's your kid, it's your life. But I don't believe that number one, if you endanger the health of your kid, that's okay. And number two, I don't think that if you endanger the health of somebody else's kid, a kid who has leukemia and can't get a vaccination because of a weak immune system, for example, that this is palatable under any circumstances. Get your kid vaccinated. Okay, final question here. Uh, Justin says, I'm a, Pennsylvania, I'm a Pennsylvania high school senior graduating just a few hours after you finish your podcast today. Once I do, I'd eventually like to introduce myself to the public sphere as a fresh conservative voice and potentially campaign for office at some point. Any advice on how I can get started? Thanks. Love the show. So read, 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 and read. Just read, okay? So I think there are too many figures in the conservative movement and in politics generally who don't know what the hell they're talking about or who don't know what they don't know and who don't spend a lot of time actually cultivating the expertise necessary to talk about particular issues. And I spend an awful lot of time researching this show, reading, I've been doing it for years. I mean, I have 6,000 volumes at home. I've probably read 5,000 of them. And that, that is not meant as a brag. It is meant as an example of, of if you want to get knowledgeable something, you have to dedicate enormous sums of time to it. Uh, so read, write, get out there, report. If you want to be prominent in politics, give people information they don't have. Not just perspective. Everybody has a perspective. But information they may not have heard is a lot more valuable than, than a perspective that they probably already have heard in some form. Okay, time for a quick thing that I like and then a quick thing that I hate. So a thing that I like today... So I just have to point this out. This was just fantastic. Local TV, San Diego. Uh, there is a reporter who decided that it would be worthwhile to report on what they call the inflatable run, which is, I guess, where people dress up in giant, like, inflatable plastic thingies, and then they run around like idiots. Uh, and it's called the Adrenaline Run. Okay, sounds like fun for a group of people. This was the most awkward segment of TV in modern media history, which is saying a lot. Uh, here's what it looked like. This is the world of inflatables. Give yourselves a nice round of applause, everybody. These are just the volunteers coming out here today. Um, and Addie, you're gonna. What kind of fun do you think you're gonna have today? Um, lots of fun. Um, lots of fun. That's a, that's a good kind. 
Um, helping just... Helping everybody? So, Lean, what do you think? I didn't hear the question. I'm sorry. What kind of fun do you think you can find here today? All kinds? All yeah. kinds of fun? Uh, repeat after me. Abracadabra, one, two, three. Abracadabra, one, two, three. Now it's time to see what we see. Now it's time to see what we see. Whoa, everybody. Oh, my goodness. Holy crap. So, yeah, and then that, that waking nightmare just arrived from the back, and he talks to this inflatable guy back there. Wow, that is that is local television, man. I hope it never goes away because it is spectacular. So, um, amazing stuff. Okay, quick thing I hate. Alrighty, so yesterday we had Ben Rhodes, the former Obama administration liar, going around and talking about how we need the government to watchdog Facebook. We need the government to watchdog social media to ensure that we are not told bad information. This absolute liar. Now we have James Clapper, who also is a liar, right, who essentially you know, likely perjured himself before Congress. James Clapper, we have, uh, saying that what we actually need is an FCC for social media. So he wants the government to regulate social media too. You're getting the message that a lot of these people on the left are very interested in regulating social media, maybe because they're losing the conversation when they can't regulate it. Here's James Clapper making a fool of himself. I believe, and I've said this publicly, that what we need for the social media platforms is something akin to the uh, Federal Communications Commission, which was set up in the 1920s to regulate radio and later television. We have nothing comparable for the social media platforms. And as we've seen, uh, although they'd like to just regulate themselves, I believe they need uh, oversight and regulation from the government. Perfect. That's just what we need. We need a government that lies to us, regulating people so that they don't lie to us. This, I think this will just be great. So James Clapper, who lied in front of Congress, you know, that's he's going to tell us. Ben Rhodes, who lied to the American people, he's going to tell us. Okay, you ever wonder why I'm a First Amendment absolutist? This is the reason I'm a First Amendment absolutist. Keep these idiots out of the business of regulating the, the information that you see. Otherwise, you're not going to have the information that you need. Okay, we'll be back here on Monday. I hope you have a wonderful weekend. Take time with your family. Enjoy life. Find some spiritual purpose. Just have, have a really solid, purposeful weekend. And I'll see you here on Monday. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. The Ben Shapiro Show is produced by Senya Villarreal, executive producer Jeremy Boring, senior producer Jonathan Hay. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover, and our technical producer is Austin Stevens, edited by Alex Zingaro. Audio is mixed by Mike Caramina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Alvera. The Ben Shapiro Show is a Daily Wire Ford Publishing production. Copyright Ford Publishing 2018. We'll get to more on this in just one second first. Pure Talk believes in American values, and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick-charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving.